Welcome to the Stuttgart Missional Community Church Sermon Podcast. SMCC is a multicultural church serving the English-speaking community in Stuttgart, Germany. For more information or to contact us, visit us on the web at smcchurch.net. That's smcchurch.net. We all know that we're sinners, right? We know we're sinners. We know we sin. But do you know why you sin? And, and, and do you really want to? You know, do you want to sin? And this is kind of a loaded question, right? Because the truth is, yes, we sin. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we'd say, yes, we, we choose to sin. We choose to sin. And we sin because we want to. And we sin because it's the result of us ignoring God's commands and instead choosing the immediate gratification of our flesh and our own desires, putting ourselves effectively above God and our perceived needs above God. I can tell you that every time in my Christian life, my walk with Jesus, where I have chosen, where I have sinned, it has been a choice. It has been a want to. Even if it's only for a moment, even if that moment is fleeting, I'm not saying my heart is bent towards evil, but in that moment, I have options. And I'm fully aware of those options, but I still choose at times to sin. And what I'm doing is I'm just, for that immediate, for that moment, I'm placing myself as God. You know, I am putting myself as God over my own life, and I'm ignoring his commands, which I know, I absolutely know, are for my benefit. And in this way, we are lawbreakers. In this way, we are sinners. And it's just important that we, the reason I'm establishing this in the introduction, which is usually where I have jokes and things to make you like me, is because in this moment, it's really important that we all start from the same page. Right? We can't start this sermon by saying, okay, well, I'm, I'm actually okay. Jesus just made me better. We have to start the sermon from the point that we are all lawbreakers. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, uh, the rest of this sermon will click. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Who would argue that? Right? We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of God's glory. We are all lawbreakers. How many of you are glad you came already? Amen. Right? A couple of you. Okay, good. <laughs> so let's get into Judges chapter 2, verse 8. It says this, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died in an age of 110 years. Awesome. Awesome. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in the Timoth Harries in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh, gosh, I think that's gosh. Verse 10, and all, the, the, all that generation were also gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. Verse 11, and the Lord of Israel did what was, excuse me, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. These are the gods surrounding them, of the people surrounding them. And they abandoned the Lord their God, of their, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. And they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals in the Ashtaroth. So here we see that God's people, they're rebelling against God by abandoning him. 
They're just abandoning him. In every aspect of their life, they are abandoning God. And at the heart of rebellion, at the heart of abandoning God, is idolatry. And this is so important because, you know, we have the Ten Commandments and people are like, you know, I keep the Ten Commandments. The first one that we all break is the sin of idolatry. It's the first one. If you can keep the first two, you can keep the other eight. No doubt, right? If you have no other gods before him and you honor him, and you, have, and you have no idols, you'll keep the other ones. The, the other, all the other sins are broken as a result of, uh, of, of breaking the first two. First, idolatry is everywhere. Everywhere, inside the church and outside the church. Because it is certainly possible to worship good things. Right? Things that are good but are still things. Things that are not God. You know, good things become God things and, God, and, and then those things become bad things. Hello? We can have good things in our lives, but the second we start to worship them, they become idols, and then they become bad things in our lives, and they end up destroying us. But one reason idolatry is so prevalent is because it's just absolutely everywhere. It's definitely outside the church. And those of us inside the church, those of us who are born again, those who are saved, those who have a relationship with Jesus, sometimes we really enjoy pointing out the idols of the world. And we like pointing at them and saying, okay, you know, this is, an, this is obviously an idol. But there are definitely idols inside the church, too. Things that de- definitely are preeminent. And I heard an I read, I didn't hear, I read an author one time who said, whatever you think about heaven being, whatever you think about, you know, if it's golfing or fishing or, or, or using your cricket until it just blows up, whatever, if you're a hobby, hobbyist, whatever, whatever heaven looks like to you, right, this may be something that you're worshiping in place of God here on earth. You know, I mean, that really stuck out to me. It's like, what do I think of heaven being, right? And you hear people talk about heaven all the time. Oh, yeah, the, the fairways are straight and the greens roll true. And, you know, it's just like, really, is that what heaven is? No, heaven is to be in the presence of God. And if you don't enjoy worshiping God, if you don't enjoy being in his presence, then I don't think heaven's the place you're going to want to be because that's what heaven really is. And so, you know, we make good things idolatrous, and we have to constantly be on guard. We really have to be aware of this, that we are really susceptible to worshiping idols because it puts us on guard and, and, and helps us see things for what they really are. And once something starts taking place of God in our life, it has become an idol. Also, idolatry is very, very easy. You know, why do we have idols? Because it's instant gratification. We, it, it's easy. It's really, really easy. And it's so easy that it's really, it's very explainable, right? Especially because we can, we can explain it to somebody else who probably has an idol in their life and they're like, oh yeah, that's okay. You know, because they want to keep their thing too and you want to keep your thing. And so this is kind of the problem with going to other people about our idols because, you know, we're all susceptible to having idols. And so when we go to other people and we're like, hey, I think this might be a problem for me or, you know, or, or other people just overlook it, even in your, you know, maybe in your small group or people that you're close with, they just kind of overlook this thing in your life because they've got their thing too. But we, this is where the family of God really needs to stick together and we really need to combat idolatry together. And uh, call it out when we see it, because it really does destroy people. It really does ruin their relationship with God, especially when we're rationalizing our sin, when we're rationalizing our idolatry. And these are all steps into completely abandoning God. Now, 
there's an interesting, I heard some people just kind of say, whoa, even when I read it just a second ago, about this complete abandonment of God in verse 10. And all the generations were gathered to their fathers, and there arose a generation after them who did not know the work that he had done for Israel, did not know the Lord of the work he had done. Church, this is especially hard, I think, for parents. And make no mistake about it, I understand following Jesus is hard enough, right, without the added responsibility of the spiritual welfare of other people, right, i.e. your children. Uh, you know, you as parents, you are responsible for the spiritual welfare of your children, and this is a huge task, right? And kids, you are responsible to obey your mother and your father, and this is for good reason, right? Because they have seen things you have not seen. And here we see this clearly in scripture. This generation of Caleb had seen things that the generation coming after had not seen. And if the testimony of the elders of those who are, who have been through way more than they've ever been through is not enough because you know everything, listen, teenagers, you got a problem. Your parents want good for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your parents want so it's best for you? Parents, do you believe that God wants what's best for you. And here we have a generation who have aban completely abandoned God. See, I think many parents get it really, really twisted. And I'm not here to beat up parents. I mean, you know I don't have children myself. And I, I, but I look at you and I see what you're doing. And man, it's amazing to me. I, we had two babies born into the church just this week, but one Wednesday and one Thursday. We have Titan, who was born on Wednesday, right? Titan? Wednesday, and then um, Abigail, who was born on Thursday. I was, I was, now, Titan was born at, at Launchstool, but uh, Abigail was born here, so I was able to see her on Friday. And uh, Katie is holding this eight-and-a-half-pound baby. And just the whole miracle of that blows my mind, right? This baby's like half her height. You know, I'm like, it's, it, it seems like it, you know? Like, how, what, what? You know, and then she had this baby in an hour and a half. I want to tell you, every single week in our growth group, her prayer request is, let the baby come early, let the baby come quick. Both happened. Both happened. I'm just saying. An hour and a half. That was amazing. And uh, with no epidural, right? So, yeah. You know, hey, but ladies, if you want to have epidurals, uh, yeah. Yes, do it, right? I mean, I'm not putting her on a pedestal because she didn't have that, right? But it is still hardcore, right? It's definitely hardcore. And parenting isn't easy, and I'm not an expert, and I'm definitely not an expert on what it means to walk with your kids day to day, but I, I, I think I do have some experience in the Bible. And the Bible is very clear about the expectation of parents. You are absolutely 100% the, the, the primary spiritual caregiver for your children. It's not the church. It's not the Christian school. It's you, it's you. And here we have a generation who failed in their duty to their children. And so their children grew up without a knowledge of God. And parents have decided that the, faith for that, that, that the fight for faith in Christ is not a fight worth fighting. You know, you're going to let your kids hate you for sending them to calculus. You're going to let them hate you for going to practice when they don't want to. But one thing you're not willing to let them hate you for is raising them up to fear and honor the Lord. This is a problem, church, because we get confused and we get it really twisted because we think that this fight's not worth fighting. 
Not only is it the only fight worth fighting, I would say it's the only fight. Do you listen to me? It's the only fight. Everything that we, that we, we make a priority in our life, it's so twisted. And it in some ways can reflect our own idolatry. The only fight worth fighting is the fight of faith. Period. It's the only fight. If you get this right, everything else will come in to line. Do you believe that? Put him first. Everything else follows. And so many parents, so many. We, have, we were children's pastors for 12 years. And let me tell you, I love your kids. Now, I may not be the best with them. I, I'll be the first to tell you that. And I'm getting worse as age goes on. <laughs> I am definitely, I used to be good. People are like, you used to be a kid's pastor? Yeah, like a long time ago. <laughs> you know? But I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting worse at, at that part of it. But like Nathan, you know, this is Nick and Katie's other kid. That kid hates me. I mean, I can't do anything. And some of your kids, they love me, but this kid hates me. I can't even be around without him almost crying or actually crying. Where was I going with that? I don't even know. But when we meet parents who say, well, you know, we're just letting our kids make their own choices. You know, we don't want to drive them away from church. We are mistaking, we are mistaking, that's a huge mistake, to say that if, if I raise my child in the Lord, if I force this on them, that they're going to walk away. What you are doing is, yes, there is a chance of that, but you are, almost virtu- you are virtually guaranteeing it by not teaching them anything at all. And that's the problem. We think, okay, we're going to win because at some point they're going to come to some personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. And while that may be true, you are abdicating your given role. Number one, you are being disobedient, parents. That's the first thing. And number two, you are not increasing the odds of your child's salvation. You are decreasing him. You are decreasing it. Because you will fight for so many other things. If your kid came in tomorrow and said, I don't want to go to algebra class. How many kids wish you could do this? You could just go in and say, parents, I don't want to go to algebra. And then your parents said, okay. Okay, fine. No, why? And maybe they don't need algebra today. Maybe they don't. And my wife would be quick to remind all of us that math happens every day. Okay, a former math teacher, she'll tell you, you know, this happens every day. And that's true. But you're preparing your children for life after you. And, you're, and that's why they need algebra. That's why they need calculus. That's why they need to go to school, right? And that's why they need Jesus. And that's why they need you to set the example. And that's why they need you to train them up. Because maybe they won't make the choice, and maybe they will rebel after high school. I hope not. But they will always have that foundation, right? They will always have that foundation. And it's so important. Church, let's get what we're fighting for right. Right? Let's get it, let's get it right. I would say that the fear of spiritual rebellion in your children is paralyzing you from doing your duty as parents. I've seen this over and over and over. You don't need to be paralyzed. There is no fear. Just trust the Lord and do your best. And one thing, and doing your best means doing what he says. Not what you think or not what's going to make you popular, but what he says. Because I hate to see a generation raised up of good godly parents raising up a generation of children like these children who don't know the Lord. Because while they fought, the, the people of Israel, Joshua's generation, we've already explored their faith. Right? They're the ones who shouted down the walls of Jericho. They're the ones who defeated the armies of the people around them. They had great faith. 
But what they neglected to do is teach it to their children. So it's not just enough that you have great faith. It's imperative that you teach it to your children that they would also know. The second point we get to is in Judges chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And because they were worshiping idols, we see in verse 14, it says this, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. So what we learn from this story, what we learn from this 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 recorded history is that God disciplines his people out of his great love for them. God didn't intend, and it wasn't his desire that they be plundered by plunderers, right? That was not his intention. His intention was to bring them into the land of milk and honey, but in their disobedience, he loves them enough to say no. This again is a great lesson in parenting, right? But it applies to all of us. It applies to all of us. Love is not only expressed in yeses and in gifts, but also in firm noes. Amen. Aren't you glad that your parents didn't say yes to everything you thought was a good idea? I'm, I'm really glad. I'm alive today because my parents, even though the line was a little skewed, they did still know where to draw a line, right? Because, I mean, I was jumping off roofs. I was doing stupid stuff. And they were like, look, you got to stop this. You're going to kill yourself. No, right? And here God is saying, I'm not going to ignore sin indefinitely. He's being very patient with Israel. But God does not ignore sin indefinitely. And, And discipline and love are not enemies that need to be reconciled. Discipline and love are friends. And they are working together for God's glory and for our good. You know, I've heard it often said, God loves you so much that he's not willing to leave you just as you are. He accepts you as you are, but he loves you enough to not leave you as you are. And that's, that saying is true. While we are saved, while we are washed in the blood, while the great exchange has taken place and we are Christians, we are still becoming more Christ-like. This is called the process of sanctification. We're continually being more like Christ. See, so many of us, we, we come to Christ, we get saved, we start sitting in church, and we think it's over. We're just waiting for Jesus to come back. No, the picture of sanctification is that we are becoming more and more like him every day. What John say? He must increase, I must decrease. Every day, a little bit more of us dies, and a little bit more of us lives in Christ. A little bit more of us is surrendered to him. This is the process by which God is bringing us through. And he will discipline us. Now, see, I believe punishment now has been reserved for that judgment day. But discipline... That's still very much part of God's program. And you find yourself sometimes in situations and you think, well, how did I end up here? Probably a series of very small bad decisions. (laughs) Probably. Something has become idolatrous in your life and it has slowly taken over and you find yourself separated from God, being plundered by the plunderers. What's the answer? What's the solution? It's repentance. It's turning back towards God. A lot of us, we're very quick to proclaim Jesus as Lord, but you know as well as I do, it's not, people aren't watching what you say, they're watching what you do. And our faith is not proven in what we say, but it's in how we 
live. And a lot of people also get this really mixed up. They think, well, you know, I must be saved because I'm doing the right things. No, you're saved by grace. You do the right things as out of obedience because you trust God fully. They're totally different. James says this, some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works and I'll show you my faith by what I do. And John says this, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. This is the words of Jesus recorded in John. What we do demonstrates our faith. And blessing, blessing is the result of obedience, not of words. Francis Chan, who's just such a great illustrator of, this, of Scripture, he, he talks about it like this. He's talking to his daughter, and he tells her, go clean your room. And she goes, in, she, she goes away, and he thinks she's cleaning the room. It turns out he goes in the room. The room is still a complete mess. There's clothes everywhere. It's a mess. And he's like, I, I thought I told you to clean your room. And she says, well, here, you know, I, I thought about cleaning my room. You know, I, I looked at my room. I analyzed my room. And, you know, I got my friends together, and we talked about how we could clean the room. And, and you know, then we got together. And now we get together every Tuesdays, and we have coffee, and we talk about how can we clean the room. But I haven't cleaned the room yet you know we just talk about it and and there's 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 merit in bible studies there's merit in getting together there's merit here in teachings but make no mistake about it we come together to hear the word of god that we might do the word of god was francis chan satisfied at his daughter's vain attempt to kind of skirt the issue talking about it thinking about it plotting it out maybe even drawing a diagram or highlighting different areas of how to clean the room. No, he'd be happy when the room was clean. We act in obedience, and our obedience pleases God and brings blessing into our lives, brings favor. Unmer- blessing is unmerited favor, right? Mercy, grace, blessing, unmerited favor of God. We're just living in obedience. We're not earning anything. We're just trusting God. And I want to tell you, God, he's got your best, he's got your best interest in his heart, all right? So now verse 16 says this, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. Now you might have a more politically correct version of the Bible, but this is the ESV version. They soon, and I think the word totally fits, by the way. I think it totally fits. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them, and they did not drop any of their practices or stubborn ways. Now, just before I get into our third point, a couple things about the text here. It points out the absolute mercy of God. Why, are, why is Israel in trouble? It's their own fault, right? And how many of you got yourself in trouble? You know it's you're in trouble. You know you're suffering the consequences of your own sin, but you prayed anyway and you asked God, and somehow he made a way. And you didn't really get what you deserve. How many are thankful for the mercy of God? I am, right? They deserved everything they had coming to them. So do we. But it's the mercy of God that works, and it's demonstrated here. And also we see 
They turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. Now, Stacy's mom is a very spiritual woman and uh, really is in tune with the Lord. And, and uh, she often says that what, whatever the parents do, the kids will do worse. She's, this is, you know, I thought, man, that's, that's harsh when I first met her. After 20 years of walking with Jesus, it's absolutely true. What it, you know, parents who are on guard about things in their house and you think, oh, man, that's crazy. You know, my kids watch everything. I don't care. But these parents are like, no, my kids aren't watching that. Don't, don't judge them too harshly, okay? They're trying to keep their house pure. They're trying to keep their, their kids' minds pure. And though it may be okay for your kids, maybe it's not for theirs. And, I mean, one thing I've learned about parents, too, is that you love to judge one another. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you like to point the finger at one another, like, oh, my kid, I'm glad my kid doesn't do that. What? Your kid's like 10 times worse, you know? You know, you're just like, what? Where is that coming from? And that happens, right? That just let parents be parents. And parents, together, raise your kids to love and fear the Lord. If that means putting boundaries up, put them up. Put them up. Guard your house. That's your job too, all right? To keep the wolves out, to keep the evil out. That's your job. Because whatever the parents allow, the kids allow. I think this is, a, this is a real danger with alcohol, you know? That's one thing that definitely is a, you got to really watch out for. Do not abuse it. Do not abuse it. All right, that's just, that was all for free. That was just all there. But here's what we have from the judges. We see that God's people are saved through God's chosen leader. And let me tell you, this seems self-serving. I am not the leader. I am not the leader. I am not the judge, right? I'm not the judge. I'm a pastor. That's a vocation. That's a, that's a calling. That's an office. Jesus is the leader, right? Jesus is the pastor of SMCC. Now, we go along with the term pastor because that fits our culture. But in truth, Jesus is in charge, Jesus is his church. You are his people. And, and I, want to, I want to tell you that that is not lost on me. I understand this. And uh, I hope you understand it as well, that Jesus is the pastor. He is the head of the church. There are people who work in different offices that they're called to, but that's it. That's it. And here we see that the judges came they were anointed of God. They were blessed by God to lead his people. But as soon as they died, as soon as they were gone, they turned right around and did whatever they wanted. These are the same generation separated, but the same people building the golden calf. It's the same thing. Why? Because rebellion is in our heart. It's in our heart. I'll tell you, there's a couple things we can learn about God through this text as well. Number one, that he is not like us. If God was like us, he would have smited with the smoting hand of death Israel a long time ago. Smoting is not a word, by the way. It just sounds cool. But, you know, we would have given up on Israel a long time ago. You know, we would have turned our back. But God is not like us. He is ever merciful. The reason Jesus is not here right now, right this moment, is because the church is to be busy saving and winning souls. That's what we're going to be doing, because he's not willing that any should perish. And so the reason Jesus isn't back is because there's still opportunity to win souls. That's, that's the reason. And we learn that God desires to be in relationship with his people. He never, he never intended for us to be separated from him. And even after we willfully separated ourselves from God, he has made a way for us to come back. Because only he could. 
And he, that's how much he desires. He, we are created to be in fellowship with him. Then when we broke that fellowship, God, the Father, sent Jesus, his son, to reconcile that relationship, that we might be in relationship with him. Is there anything else God needs to do to show you that he wants to be in relationship with you? You know? No. Nothing. He's done everything he can. Everything he can. There's nothing else that needs to be done. The work on the cross, as Jesus said, is finished work. It's done. Reconciliation is possible. Another thing we learn is that God is always faithful. He's always faithful to his covenant, even when we are not. His promises are good, even when we break our promises. He is not like us. You know, you catch your kid in a lie, you catch your spouse in a lie, you're not going to trust them easily again. You catch your coworker in a lie, somebody stabs you in the back at work, you're not going to trust them easily again. God is so patient, so kind, so faithful that he keeps his promise even when we break our promise to him over and over and over and over again. He is still faithful. These people heard what the judges said. They saw the deliverance of God every single time, but they refused to act with what they heard and what they saw. Now, church, today we're sitting here, we're hearing an, another sermon, like every other Sunday. You will go to growth group like you do every week. You will answer questions like you do every week. And you will see and you will hear. But if it stops there, you're missing it. You're missing it. We must do it. We must do it. And this is where Israel fell short. They knew God. They knew about God. They had even seen God work in certain ways, but they refused to obey. They refused to walk in obedience to actually do what God is saying. Good leaders inside the church, they call people to repentance and obedience. That's what good leaders do. It's not always the popular thing to do, but everybody in this room who's a leader knows that leaders can't afford to do what's popular all the time. And that if you find yourself in a church where it's affirmation after affirmation about how good you are and how blessed you are and how awesome you are, you might be in the wrong church. Because that wasn't the role of the judges, and that wasn't the role of the prophets, and Jesus is both judge and prophet and priest. And when he comes, he definitely speaks prophetically to people. Right? He's definitely calling out sin, right? And he's he's telling them, look, there's a way to get around to get to get beyond this, but sin is still sin. And good leaders, they have those difficult conversations. They talk with those people and have those, they hold people accountable. I want to tell you that Jesus is God's chosen leader to save his people. He is the judge. All judgment has been entrusted to the Son. He is the judge. He is the Savior of his people. He is the leader of leaders. And he has appointed him that we might be saved. This is so, so important. That we put all of our hope, all of our trust in Jesus. That we accept that we are lawbreakers. That God's discipline is not an act of judgment, but a demonstration of his patience and his grace. And that God is 100% justified in punishing each and every one of us. Now see, the thing about the cross is we think, oh, it's that nice. Jesus died for us. Jesus died for us. 
And really what happened on the cross is the absolute power, authority, wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. See, God's wrath against sin, it's no different than it was in Judges or in Deuteronomy or Numbers or anything we've read. Sin will be judged. And upon the cross, it was. Do you understand? The wrath of God was poured out. The demonstration, not only of God's love for us was poured out on the cross, but his hatred of sin was on demonstration. Do you understand how much God hates sin? The wrath of God was poured out and satisfied in Jesus Christ. He took our punishment, and in so doing so, satisfied 100% the wrath of God on our behalf. That's called substitutionary atonement. It was your punishment. He took it. And today, the only day we actually receive God's judgment is to reject his gift of grace. Do you understand? The, we, there's a, you know, there's a long-standing debate in Christendom called election or predestination. And, though, and then there's, this, there's one group of Christians who believes God chooses who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. There's a lot of theological problems with that, right? However, I also fully acknowledge that the other side of this argument also has problems with what I believe, which is that God's gift of grace is for every single person, but we possess, the, we possess enough of God's grace in us, even as sinners, to respond to his invitation to faith. Okay, that we are not partners in salvation or anything else. All we do is say, yes, I receive that sacrifice. I receive Jesus as my Savior. That's why we believe that each person must make that personal decision, right? Now, election would say, in this room, let's say we just split it down 50-50. Half of you are going to hell and half of you are going to heaven. God has already decided that. Now, God may know what's happening, but that doesn't mean he's decided it for you. The problem with that theology is it gets rid of a lot of free will, right? And it also makes God the author of sin because there has to be a delineating line that separates those that are saved and those who are not. Sin is that delineating line. If he's already chosen, then he must be the author of sin. At least that's my point of view argument on it, okay? What I am saying, I said all that to say this, this gift of grace, Jesus being poured out, this is so that each and every person might respond in faith and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The only way for you to be punished, to get the punishment you deserve, is to deny that invitation for grace. Do you understand? The gift is for you. The gift is for you, but you have to receive it, right? A gift under a tree is not a gift, right? It's a gift once you receive it. So many people are just leaving it under the tree. The gift must be received today, God's gift of grace waits for you. It waits for you. Will you receive it? There's no other way. You will get what you deserve if you don't accept Jesus' gift. Right? You will get what you deserve, and all of us deserve punishment and hell and damnation. We do. But the gift of grace is Jesus Christ, that none should perish, but each should have everlasting life. Amen. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the SMCC Sermon Podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at smcchurch.net. That's smcchurch.net.